Uh, The reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 23. And for those of you who have the uh, 2.11 uh, edition of the NIV, it's page 1777. And in this reading, Paul talks about God's purposes for his church and reminds the Ephesian church of the incredible love God has for them. God's marvellous plan for the Gentiles. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things." His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, we prayed already in that last song that the Spirit would help us understand um, this passage this morning, so let's... um, Let's go straight in. In Long Crendon, we have the, um, the pleasure of um, living in the heart of murder mystery land. 
We have midsummer murders taking place right on our doorstep. Picture coming there. Dangerous places to go in Long Crendon, avoid the church house and the library. Uh, but also in Oxford, also we have, um, you know, Inspector Morse as he was, but now um, his uh, successor, Lewis, investigating murders taking place there. We must have one of the highest regional murder rates, I think, in the country, so it's surprising people still choose to live here. But also it's like a good um, murder mystery, don't we? When all is revealed, to be able to say, yeah, I knew it was him all along. Even though throughout the episode at different times, every time a new character appears, we think, actually, it could be, could be him. Well, mystery is a word which occurs frequently in Ephesians, and particularly in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And it refers to the revealing of God's plan, being made clear what he had in mind. If we just turn back to um, chapter 1 briefly and remind ourselves what it said there in verse 8 of chapter 1. So with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The plan that God has revealed is to bring unity. We're in a, as we've looked at in these last couple of weeks, a fragmented and alienated world, and God wants to put it together again. And what we see in the passage this morning is what we finished with last uh, last week, that the church is at the center of God's plan. Now that might strike you as surprising, um, particularly if you're not a regular church goer, because for many people, church has a negative ring to it, doesn't it? Um, For many people, it means either that, that institution, it might mean an old building, uh, even the expression to go to church isn't particularly attractive, is it? What did you do last weekend? Oh, well, I, I went to church. Whereas what we're really saying is, well, actually, I met up with some other friends who, who are also Christians, and we had a good time together meeting with God. Church is not a place we, we go. It's uh, people we are a part of. And the other reason that it may surprise you that the church is at the center of God's plans is that the individualism of our society, uh, the stress on the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, have somehow come together so that the church has become, in many people's minds, an unfortunate necessity. Something I'll go along with because I have to, but I'll do it on my own terms. So I'll go along to um, churchsupermarket.com put in all my preferences for uh, age of building, uh, age of people, age of music, age of Bible translation, age of the biscuits, um, and hopefully that will come the right church that meets my needs. Well, the title of this whole sermon series is Together in Christ. And time and again, Paul writes in this letter about how important togetherness and unity are to God. And nowhere is that more evident than in the church. So in what ways does this passage tell us that the church is at the centre of God's plans? Well, even before God created humankind, he had a plan. And that plan was to create a community of his people. But that community would only become a community when they were reconciled with one another. And they'd only become his community when they were reconciled to him. 
And so we looked at last week, didn't we, how God brought together two peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, two people who were violently opposed to one another, who were separated by a wall of hostility, and he broke it down through Christ's death on the cross. And so verse 6 here says in chapter 3, have a look down if you've got a Bible open, this mystery is that through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the news of salvation, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Last time you might remember we used the images of fellow citizens, brothers and sisters in Christ, and part of the temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And now we've got these new images, the fact that they are co-heirs, that they are members of the same body. They share in the same promises. Now that is a lot of descriptions for the church, isn't it? Which again emphasizes just how important the church is to God's plans. The image of the body is again one which Paul uses a lot of times in Ephesians. Um, If you look ahead to chapter 4, verse 16, it says there, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Great verse which we'll look at next time. As one of you, some of you know, I recently broke a bone in my foot. Uh, in many ways, one small bone in your foot shouldn't make much difference, but actually affects everything you're able to do. You can't walk, um, you can't do all the things that you want to do. It affects your um, your mental attitude. Every part of the body is important to make it all work, as many of you will know. And it's the same with the church. If one person is suffering, then the whole of the church feels it. Because we all need one another. We all have a part to play. So, of course, Christ is at the center of God's plans, but he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. So the church is central to God's plan. Well, the other thing this passage tells us about why the church is central to God's plan is that the church reveals God's manifold wisdom. Paul is an apostle who's had the mystery of God's plan revealed to him. And he's been given, it says here, the grace, the privilege to explain this mystery to the Gentiles the non-Jews. In fact, it says in verse 8, he's been called to preach the boundless riches of Christ. And we've looked to the first couple of chapters what some of these riches are. They are the fact that they've received God's grace, his, his love. They've been chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. They've been adopted as his children. They've been free, they've been forgiven They've been reconciled with others and reconciled to God. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. They've had the mystery of God's plan revealed to them. Boundless riches. But boundless doesn't just mean that there are lots of riches. It means they are unsearchable. They are unfathomable. They are inscrutable. We can't just put them on a list and put them on a PowerPoint slide and uh, show them to one another. Because these are not just abstract ideas. They're not scientific facts. These are truths which we feel and which we experience. And there's a depth to which we can experience them, which we'll come on to shortly. But these are riches which are freely available to everybody through Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that having received the gifts of God's grace himself, having had the mystery of God's plan revealed to him, 
He now has been given the task to pass that on to those who haven't yet understood it. And whatever that may involve. Now for him, it means imprisonment. But he says in verse 13, I ask you not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. But it's not just Paul who has been commissioned to reveal the mystery of God's plan. It's also the responsibility of the whole church. And so Paul says in, in verse 10, he says, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That manifold wisdom, that multifaceted wisdom reflects the diversity of the church. The church is made up of people from all nations, of all, all races, all backgrounds. And as the church grows and it becomes more diverse, we're told here the heavenly beings see more of God's wisdom in the church. And that is an amazing privilege to feel that we can show the wisdom of God by making known his plan of salvation to, to those that don't know it. So how do we apply this to ourselves? And I think it's quite a simple application, really, isn't it? If the church is so important to God and his plans, do we fully appreciate just how much of a privilege it is to belong to it? Or do we take it for granted? <clears throat> if you just think of the training, the commitments that uh, an athlete puts into to honing his or her body, so that each part of it is working perfectly, Think what the church would look like if we had that same dedication and commitment to one another. I think one of the reasons for the questionnaire that we're issuing today is that we want to be a finely tuned body. We want to know the weaknesses that we can help each other address. And part of that would be about how equipped and committed we are to the purpose. The purpose of revealing the mystery of God's plan to the world. The crucial thing, though, that, that we need is what comes up next week, really, is how we relate to one another as different parts of the body. Are we prepared to, to listen to one another? Are we prepared to submit to one another, to serve one another, to build one another up? We're not perfect, and we need to be careful that we don't give the impression to, to those outside the church that somehow we think we're perfect. But if we acknowledge the importance of the church and God's plans and the privilege it is to belong to his church, that is a great, great start. We also need to accept our need for God's help, which is why in verse 14, Paul comes back to his prayer. He started this prayer in verse 1. He was going to launch into prayer, but then he got distracted by the need to re-emphasize just how important the church is in God's plans. But now he comes back to, to his prayer in verse 14. And this prayer very much gives us an idea of how we should pray for the church. And what we see clearly in these verses is that the church needs to seek the power of God in prayer. And before we come on to that prayer though, what I think Paul is illustrating here as he prays is the importance of understanding God's will, reading the Bible and praying about it. Because what moves Paul to pray is his understanding of God's great plan. And so he's praying in the knowledge of God's will. 
If we just read the Bible without them praying, it becomes quite a, a dry exercise. It's something we've just sort of ticked off, we've done that, we can move on, get on with the rest of the things we need to do. And likewise, if we just pray without reminding ourselves of God's truth in the Bible, then it can very easily become focused on us and our needs rather than on glory of God. Let's have a look at this prayer again. Because there's some amazing truths in here. For this reason, I kneel before the family from whom every family in heaven and earth on earth derives its name. I pray <clears throat> that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, let's just stop there for a minute, because I think that what is coming out here is the power to love. Paul is praying first that God would give them the power in their inner being through his spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now to have Christ dwell in our hearts and to have the spirit dwelling in our inner being is in many ways the saying the same thing because it's by the spirit that Christ dwells in our hearts. Now you may ask, well if they're already Christians surely they already have Christ dwelling in their hearts by by the Spirit. So why does he need again to pray for that? Because there are different degrees of indwelling and strengthening by the Spirit. And we'll find out in a couple of weeks' time in chapter 5 where Paul tells the Ephesians to continue being filled with the Spirit, with the strength of the Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. And also in the word dwell here that Paul uses, he's saying that although Christ has moved into your hearts, has he really taken up residence there? Has the place really been made habitable for him? It's a bit like when you, you move home. Sometimes it takes a while, doesn't it, to, to make somewhere our home. You can pick up the keys, you can uh, transport all your belongings, take all your boxes, but um, maybe the boxes remain unopened. Maybe it's still in the state it was when you moved in several months ago. I remember when we first moved home in uh, St. Albans, the first, first thing we got rid of was this uh, lovely attractive door, which had a sort of 60s sunbeam um, design on it. Then there's all the Victorian stuff, the attractive stuff, which had been covered up, the fireplaces which had been blocked up, the doors which had been panelled over. Got rid of all that, went into the cellar, very damp, cellar which we made into a usable room and finally the place was habitable it was usable it took time as it will take time for elm trees to be ready for mark and steph to uh, to move into and make it their home when we take that first commitment to accept jesus christ into our lives he comes into our lives whatever state it is in and they can be a real mess and he starts the work of clearing up and that is what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, yes, I know Jesus is Lord of your life, but in order for him to be Lord of over every aspect of your lives, I'm praying that he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit. I'm praying that your life will more and more reflect his character. That still doesn't answer the question, what is this strength or power for? Why does he pray that Christ will be a, a permanent fixture in their hearts? I think it is the power to love. He's praying they would have the power to 
to love. Now you think, I think my thing, that's a bit of a strange thing to pray for. Surely you don't need power to love. It's something you just do normally. It just comes naturally. You may fall in love with somebody quite easily. That's not the sort of love that um, he's getting at here. Here is the same love that God has displayed already. It's a love that requires an act of the will. It's a sacrificial love. And particularly when he's asking them to love those from whom they were previously separated by a wall of hostility. Where there is still suspicion and mistrust, jealousy. It's a love that forgives those who have done wrong to us. That is the power that we need to ask God for. And as we ask for that power, then we become, as it says here, rooted and established in love. But in order to become rooted and established in love and have the power to love others, we need something else that Paul prays for. And that is, as it carries on in verse 17, the power to know God's love. Have a look at verse 17. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. These are two different images that get at the same thing. The first conveys the image of a plant that that depends on the strength of its roots to, to thrive, to grow. If the roots are strong, then it can be battered, but remains intact And that applies to our Christian faith. If our roots, or the other image used here, our foundations, are in the love of Jesus, if we trust in his love that caused him to die for for us, then we are free to grow. We can't grow without those roots. But it's also not enough to simply put down shallow roots and stop growing. The reason Paul is praying for them to have power is because they do not fully appreciate the love of Christ. The roots are shallow. They need to grow down further. They need to spread so the plant can grow upwards. And in order to do that, they need the power to know the love of Christ. And that love, as it says here, is too wide and long and high and deep for us to fully grasp. It surpasses knowledge, it says. We will never fully know fully know it but as we grow in our knowledge of it so will our lives be characterised by love for others and so will our roots deepen how do we do that then? well we do it by praying Paul was praying that the believers in Ephesus would, would know the love of Christ and we need to pray that not only ourselves but everyone else we know would grasp that love that God in his mercy would, by his spirit, open our eyes to see it. Now the thing is, it's not an intellectual understanding that we're talking about here. It's being able to experience his love in action. I don't know how many of you have seen the film uh, Evan Almighty. Many of you have seen that. It's a sort of modern day version of uh, Noah's Ark, if you like. And um, Morgan Freeman plays the role of God. So he's probably changed a lot of children's view of who God is, what he looks like. They probably think he's now um, an old uh, black guy in a long white cloak. But there's a great quote in the film when uh, the family are going through a tough time. And um, he says to the mother, he says this. 
He says, let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, do you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If he prays for courage, does God give him courage? Or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, which is what the mother has done, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? And at that point, the penny drops, and she goes back to her husband, who's busy building this ark. Um, to pray that we would know God's love more deeply is to be willing to go through tough times to experience his love in our lives. Well, again, what is the simple application coming out of uh, this passage? Well, it's really three questions. First of all, are we asking for God's power? Verse 20, with which we often conclude our services, is a testimony of a belief in the power of God and our dependency on it. To him who is able could easily be translated to him who has the power. And the amazing thing about this verse is that God has says has the power to do immeasurably more, abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. And the obvious question is, if he can do all that, then why don't we ask him to? Is it because we don't trust in his power, or is it because we are trusting in our own power? Which is clearly much weaker. Again, one of the aspects of the questionnaire is to help us grow in our prayer life as a church. Prayer is the powerhouse of the church. That is the means through which the power of God is is unleashed. Secondly, are we asking for the, the right power? How often do we actually ask for the power to love? How often do we ask for the power to grasp God's love? The biggest obstacle to growth, I think, for us as a church will be our lack of love for one another. In chapter 4, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. In other words, by showing love to one another. And that love is expressed, as it says in verse 2 of chapter 4, being completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another, keeping the unity of the Spirit. As we said earlier, Paul's love caused him to be imprisoned. To what lengths will we go to love one another and to love those around us, living around us? And final question, are we asking for the right reason? Consequences of being filled with power in the inner being, having Christ dwell in you fully, the consequence of knowing Christ's love fully is, in the words of verse 19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that you will become mature, that you'll become like him, which is what we're all hoping to become. And we also need to remember that in the process, what we are doing is for his glory. And so the passage finishes. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's just have a moment of quiet to um, reflect on what we've heard and um, speak to God. Is there something that he's saying to you through this that uh, you need to look at? Is it the power of love that you need to be praying for?
that we need to be praying for. Moments of, of quiet. Lord God, we thank you for your church. We thank you that it is central to your plans. Thank you that you love your church. And we pray that we would consider it a privilege to be part of it. That we would understand the, your purpose for us to reveal the, the mystery of your, your plan of salvation to the world around us. Lord, help us to be reminded of what a privilege it is to, to show love to one another in the church in the same way that you have showed us your love. And so, Lord, we pray for the power of your love, that we would, all of our relationships with one another would be characterized by that, that love, that submissive, sacrificial, serving love. And, Lord, as we pray for the power of that love, we pray for the power to grasp the love that you have for us. Help us to understand it in greater depth, that all of our lives would be characterized by that love as we love those around us. Lord, build us up, we pray, as a church, in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's close now in prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.